Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. If you're enjoying the clinical reasoning series and the podcast more generally, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can pledge as little as a pound or a couple of dollars per episode, and your support really makes a difference and helps ensure the quality and regularity of the episodes. So following on from my previous episodes in the series with Bjorn Hoffman, where we spoke about the ethics of disease and the moral obligations that flowed from being given a diagnostic label, On this episode, we're going to speak more explicitly about clinicians thinking directed towards ethical problems and the resulting moral judgments they should endeavour to make and the processes which deliver them to those judgments. And so today I'm speaking with Professor Claire Delaney. Claire is a professor in clinical education at the University of Melbourne in the Department of Medical Education and a clinical ethicist at the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre, and also Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. She also chairs the University of Melbourne's Centre for Human Research Ethics Committee, and her health professional background is in physiotherapy. Her research interests include applied health ethics, paediatric bioethics, clinical reasoning, and critical reflection. And Claire has authored more than 100 publications in these areas. She's also co-edited two books titled Learning and Teaching in Clinical Contexts, A Practical Guide, and When Doctors and Parents Disagree, Ethics, Paediatrics, and the Zone of Parental Discretion. And I've linked both books in the show notes. So in this episode, we speak about what ethics is in the context of healthcare practice, including the ethical principles of autonomy, non-maleficence, beneficence and justice. We talk about the interaction and occasional tension between evidence-based practice and ethics-based practice and how thinking about ethics can help settle clashes between research evidence, patient values and clinician judgment and experience. We talk about what ethical reasoning is and the processes involved in making moral judgments. We talk about how it feels to identify an ethical problem which is often intuitive, or as Claire describes, as icky. We talk about ethical reasoning, when the consequences or stakes are high, and we talk about communicating risk to patients prior to treatment, and we use some case examples, including patients requesting seemingly ineffective treatments, or treatments which the clinician may feel is potentially harmful, or not in the patient's best interest. We talk about how the ethical principles should apply to all healthcare settings, whether public or private, but in reality there are differences in how these principles are interpreted and applied in these respective settings. And finally we speak about how ethical reasoning motivates us to be aware of our own assumptions and the assumptions and values of others, which enriches our clinical work and also the therapeutic bond with our patients. So this was such a wonderful conversation with Claire. She beautifully highlighted the foundational nature, yet often prickliness, of the ethical dilemmas 
we all face in practice. And she shares some extremely useful reasoning strategies to identify, manage and resolve the inevitable ethical moments in our clinical practice. So I bring you Professor Claire Delaney. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Oliver. So we're going to speak about an area which seems to be unavoidable. I mean, ethics seems to be threaded through everything that clinicians do and should be thinking about. And I kind of hope through our conversation, we make some of these ethical issues more more explicit and talk about the thinking directed towards these ethical problems. So this is a follows on nicely from my conversations, I hope, with Professor Bjorn Hoffman around ethics of disease. Before we jump into all of that stuff, could you introduce yourself, your current academic work and how you got into ethics and bioethics? Sure. So I started out as a, I trained as a physiotherapist and worked in physiotherapy for about 18 years on and off. But I found myself more interested in ethical and legal obligations of physiotherapy practice. And I embarked on a Master's of Health and Medical Law to look at some of those areas. At that time, there was quite a lot of interest about the particular um, legal obligation to obtain informed consent to treatment. So it wasn't just physiotherapy based, but there there were a couple of famous or infamous cases about patients who sued doctors for on the basis that they you know weren't given enough information and if they'd had more information they might not have gone ahead with surgery and in Australia the particular case was called Rogers and Whitaker and that was about a a woman who was it was suggested to her to have surgery in her one of her eyes but she could only see through one eye she only had one eye for vision and a very um, unfortunate complication of that surgery occurred and she sued the doctor and not on the basis that the doctor was negligent but because she claimed that if the doctor had told her about this rare complication then she wouldn't have gone ahead with the surgery. And at that time, I applied that same reasoning to physiotherapy practice where the most risky thing that physiotherapists tend to do or the, or the, the action that has the potential to cause the most harm is um, cervical manipulation, manipulation of the cervical spine. So there was a bit of interest about, well, what do physiotherapists need to tell patients about uh, in order to comply with the law. But what was really interesting to me was how does that compliance approach with law, like what do I need to say in order to be legal, relate to what does a physiotherapist or a health practitioner need to say from an ethical basis, which is a, a broader basis than the law. So that was a long way of saying why I moved out of physiotherapy, Um, you know, that gradual interest in other aspects of practice. And 
so then I did a PhD looking more closely at informed consent. And from that basis, I started to work in clinical ethics. And where I have been for the past 12 years is at the Children's Hospital, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, working as a clinical ethicist in the Children's Bioethics Centre. So I made that shift to clinical ethics. And at the university, I shifted more from teaching physiotherapy to clinical education more broadly. So the two streams that I now work within are clinical ethics and clinical education. And they do sort of um, intersect quite a bit. One sort of feeds the other. So you're, you're, I'm just curious to know about your role as a clinical ethicist. I'm imagining that within this children's hospital, there's a, there's a big ethical dilemma within one of the patient interactions and they bleep you down and you come rushing into the clinic room <laughs> to try and sort out this ethical dilemma. But I'm guessing it's not, not like that. Yeah, although I think in, in some parts of the US, the clinical ethicist is uh, bleeped in that way and, and uh, is required to... <laughs> to be involved very dynamically. The models of clinical ethics in Australia and I think also in the UK are slightly less embedded. I mean, it, it varies across hospitals, but certainly at the Children's Hospital, we were originally set up to provide a service for clinicians in the background so that if clinicians had a problem, they'd, they'd bring it to us and there'd be a discussion about that ethical challenge and we'd try to critically analyse, or we do um, sort of analyse it in depth. And then it's up to the clinician to use that information in whatever way they would like to. But sometimes we get embedded in real time, um, but it's more often there's time to think and consider. So thinking about, so where this conversation sits within the clinical reasoning series and, and we're going to speak about thinking towards and around ethical problems. And I'm not sure who came up with the idea or the term ethical reasoning, but it, it just sounds great. And it seems to be different from clinical reasoning and, and thinking about clinicians who are probably very familiar or are very familiar with identifying clinical problems to solve and to figure out and to reason around. Maybe we should start with just sending some kind of signposts or markers around what ethics is and perhaps moving on to what ethical reasoning is and how it might be similar but different to clinical reasoning as discussed on the podcast before. So I think it's important to think about or distinguish between ethics and morals. In many situations, they're used interchangeably. But I think there is a distinction have it that your moral beliefs are your personal beliefs about what you think is the right thing to do and the right way to live your life. And those, your own morality is often grounded in your family's morals that, or at least you're imbued with those. You can um, choose to move away from them. But they certainly influence what you intuitively believe is the right thing to do and, the, and what your moral view about living well is and about right actions. And it's sometimes grounded in your religious beliefs as well. Whereas ethics refers to values, beliefs and perspectives about right and wrong ways to live, to 
and to to care for others and and to be in the world. But ethics is also based upon reasons. So it's a more systematic approach to what is the right thing to do. So that's why I think in health care, there are health ethics values that guide professional ethics. So your ethics is grounded not in the way you were brought up when you were being a health professional or in your religious beliefs, ideally, or, um, although sometimes I think it is in, in, in some places, the religious values come into professional ethics. But, but I think the, um, the idea of health ethics is it's different to your own personal moral beliefs. It's grounded in a set of values which in general are universally recognised as ideal values for a health professional who is caring for another and where another person has to trust the health professional. And so moving towards ethical reasoning and, and, and is that just the application of these principles? And I'm kind of thinking about my own relationship with ethics in relation to my practice, that it's the things that you're kind of obliged to do or forced to do and getting patients to fill in consent forms and negotiating consent before interventions and anonymity and all those sorts of things. So it's not Mm. just the application of these principles or is it? So tell us about ethical reasoning. Yeah, I think that's a, a, it's a good question to raise because I referred before to health ethics being a systematic approach to ethical decisions or grounded in principles which are known to others. And so the health ethics principles that are widely known and established are those, you know, that respect uh, that to, to benefit a person, um, to ensure that whatever you do is not going to be harmful, to respect the person's autonomy and preferences, your patient's wishes, and to use the resources that you have available fairly and in a just way. So those four principles which derive from, which have been made famous by Beecham and Childress in, in, and derive from um, the US, have been widely acknowledged and used in ethics teaching. And so ethical reasoning One way of thinking about it is, yes, you can uh, take those four principles and use them as your guiding values to provide a guidance about how you should act. So that sounds good and no one's going to disagree, you know, no one's going to say, well, you shouldn't. You know, why, why would you work on only benefiting and not harming? (laughs) You know, that's hard to disagree with. However, I think it can be really complicated in practice to apply those ethical principles. And there are a few reasons for that. One is there'll be different interpretations of those principles. A benefit in the eyes of a surgeon, for example, is to fix a joint and and mechanically make it working again. But that the, the restriction that that surgery might produce might not be seen as a benefit for the person receiving it. So, so, you know, there can be really different views of what is a benefit in terms of treatment, similarly different views about what's harmful and interpreting what it means to respect a person's wishes is a very wide, has very wide 
bar of interpretation, if you like, or band of interpretation. So I think that's one really big complication that that those principles can um, vary a lot in the way people interpret them. And a second, a second complication is that the principles are all equally important and, and they're often referred to as prima facie principles because on the, on the face of it, they should all be respected equally. There isn't a priority between them. And yet they may well clash so that in order to benefit a person and, and refer and going back to physiotherapy type treatment, sometimes you have to ask a person to do exercises or to move in ways that feel uncomfortable for the person, but the outcome will be a benefit. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there's more, there is some harm that you might do in order to get the, to honour the beneficence or the benefit outcome. And sometimes you might need to override a person's preferences, certainly a younger person's preferences, in order to get a benefit. So, you know, you don't, whenever one principle is going to override another, you need to come up with a justification for why that is ethically appropriate to do that. Thinking about kind of regulatory standards of practice and codes of practice of which these ethics or these principles are kind of imbibed within, sadly, it's not as straightforward as them just being instruction manuals about how to go about ethical practice that there's judgment involved, as you said. And I suppose it's that judgment, that interpretation of those principles is to some extent that ethical reasoning. It's not, it's not so straightforward saying, oh, you know, standard 4.3 says this in my code of practice. I will just apply that in a somewhat robotic way. It's not as simple as that. That's right. And I think the reason it isn't as simple as that as, as you point out, is because ethics is grounded in a set of values about uh, what makes life go well and what is a benefit to me and what is harmful to me. Some people couldn't bear the idea of, um, you know, I like riding bikes <laughs> up mountains, and some people would think that that would be just the worst activity for them, you know, even out of the health sphere. So the value of what what is enjoyable for me, what makes my life go well, what is what does well-being for me mean, is a value judgment. And so to say exactly what is the right thing to do for for a person or what constitutes a harm or what constitutes even respect is you know, there will be many different perspectives and that's why you can't robotically apply, okay, if your charge is to benefit and not harm, where's the complication? Well, there's plenty of complications. It depends on what you mean by a benefit. It depends on what you mean by a harm. And it also, yeah, it depends on how much evidence we have for the benefit we're offering. I think we'll get to in a bit the linkages between evidence-based practice and I suppose ethics-based practice but I suppose I just want to go back to ethics in relation to healthcare practice and is there a corner of healthcare practice where ethics doesn't touch I mean we should be thinking about or we are thinking about ethics whether we know about it or not all the time so the distinction between ethical reasoning and clinical reasoning it's 
I can understand the separation is to explicate the ethics. But really, when clinicians are just reasoning with patients or about patients, ethics is there, whether or not they know about it or not. Yeah. And in most circumstances, the ethical reasoning associated with a clinical decision will be absorbed into that clinical decision. So mm. the, the, the clinical plan for a treatment has, with, has within it, embedded within it without even needing to um, articulate it, that I've chosen this clinical plan because it's going to benefit you from my clinical perspective. And in most cases, patients agree with that and go along with that and um, want what you want as a clinician. And where ethics gets complicated and where you need to pull it out of your clinical reasoning is when there's disagreement, when there's different interpretations of what's going to be a good outcome uh, for for this treatment. Um, and that's when ethical reasoning needs to be pulled pulled out and thought about separately. Okay, so, so with that, it would also seem that it's the consequence of those ethical dilemmas. So and I'm trying to think of a good example here, but you know, we brought up manual therapy to the neck and the kind of severe end or the sequelae is death or paralysis is is a particularly prickly issue versus... I don't know whether or not that patients have a say in the colour of their acupuncture needles. I mean, I don't, you know, that the involvement, if you like, that or autonomy. So there does seem to be a spectrum based on consequence, how serious the outcome is in relation to this ethical dilemma or decision. Yes, you're right. I think the outcome raises the stakes. So in high stakes decisions where the outcome for the patient is potentially very harmful, then allowing, you know, keeping the value of respect for patients' preferences is an important value, but that might be overridden where a clinician knows that what the patient wants is not ideal uh, or, or is too risky and they're not prepared to do that. So patient, uh, clinicians don't have to, in, in order to um, honour the ethical principle of respect for patients' preferences and wishes, they don't have to take it to extremes, to places where if they do this, they think they're going to harm the patient. And, you know, so that's that balance that you, between all of the principles that is required. Yeah, and we keep, we're so close to getting to the case studies, the examples, because it, it's, we're mentioning implicit examples, but I suppose I want to get to evidence-based practice and within that model of practice, evidence largely, not exclusively, but is the arbiter of the decision, what the right decision to do. If there's good evidence to support an intervention, for example, intervention B versus intervention A, then that should be the treatment of choice. Of course, within the EBM, EBP, paradigm there's preferences and clinical judgment and expertise but I suppose for you just to develop the idea that when evidence and ethics clash or do they ever clash I mean is it is it clearly the ethical thing to do to offer and provide the most effective treatment based on the evidence supporting that treatment flipping that round is it unethical to deliver or offer treatment of which there's either evidence against or 
no evidence supporting? So the way that you framed that question is from the basis of the clinician's judgment. So if the clinician has strong evidence that they know about that treatment A is much more effective for for the patient, then is it unethical to, to not give that treatment? And I would say that before answering that question, I'd go back a step, which is the way that we, we often approach clinical ethics problems is before we go straight to the ethics question, we get more information about the situation. So some of the questions I would ask in order to answer your question is, what does the patient want? <laughs> and pres- presuming that the patient doesn't want, if that's why you're phrasing the question, the, the most evidence-based treatment, <laughs> that would be an ethically permissible reason for not offering it. Because if you think about those four principles, respect for patient, adult, competent adult patients' preferences is a, a, a highly important value mm. in healthcare. And if a patient comes in and their idea of well-being is to have treatment B, which might be slower at getting there, it might mean they, they have to come in a lot longer, or it might be suboptimal in all sorts of ways from the clinician's knowledge and perspective about treatment. And yet, for various reasons, that's what the patient wants. That can't be just dismissed and the treatment to be regarded as only the ethically right thing to do because of evidence. Because evidence is one value, but patient preferences and, and, and wishes is another important value. So that's why I think the evidence-based approach is worth pushing and advocating for, but the question is really to what extent should clinicians strongly advocate for evidence-based practice and when, at what point, should they allow a suboptimal treatment to occur? And I think you can answer, um, you know, people will land differently along that line at the point or or how much effort should be given. But that's what makes ethics really interesting and these sorts of ethical challenges is to actually discuss what you think because your colleagues, some colleagues will think, no, 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 I think I should always prosecute the case for doing evidence-based treatment and another colleague might think, well, no, I think the patient has a right to come along and, and receive this less optimal treatment. But if that's what, what they find useful for them, that's a really important value for us to take on. And others might say, yeah, but I'm not, just, I'm not just a technician doing just what the patient asks. They want my advice, so they, they should go with what I say. <laughs> so my take on ethical reasoning is to really stress that important discussion of articulating what you believe about what is the right thing to do here and to be open to others' opinions and views about what is the right thing to do and to really take them all seriously. And indeed, you know, as you said, to begin a conversation with the patient for whatever reason requests or prefers a seemingly 
ineffective treatment or less effective treatment, the clinician is is kind of bound to explore that. You know, that's, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? That the patient's making a choice which seems to go against seem to go against the evidence, for example, what is it about this patient? What are their expectations? What are their values? What are their beliefs around treatment? So there may be some potential opportunities there to, to kind of reframe or kind of reset. Resets sounds like um, men in black with the pen completely eliminate people's minds, but to reframe or, or to open a discussion about other options for treatment. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. If the starting point of clinical practice is that clinicians believe they have a set of ethical principles and values that guide their practice and they interpret those values uh, very literally and or from their perspective only, then it may be that they limit what those how those values might play out in practice. Whereas if they see difference between what a patient wants and what they they think is is um, the right thing to offer, then another way to see those ethical values is to see them as touch points to explore other perspectives, as as you point out. So, you know, it gives if a if a patient differs from you as the clinician to not see it as a challenge, but to see it as a possible opening to explore what the patient needs and wants and prefers and to better understand where they're coming from. Now, you may end up with a fundamental disagreement between what you want, what you think is the right thing to do and what the patient wants. And there are ethical bottom lines. You know, clinicians don't have to give treatments or drugs that they think are inappropriate or harmful to a patient. But there's plenty of grey area there about, well, what what constitutes, you know, an inappropriate treatment or an unethical treatment, if you like, and at what point should clinicians say, okay, I'm not prepared to go to do any more of this or give any more treatment. I have a, a, a case that we've often used in a project that I've uh, done about truth-telling for children is about a, and it's a hypothetical case, but we've got lots of real examples where this type of issue comes up of a nine-year-old boy scheduled for cardiac surgery in a few days and the parents have said to the clinicians, look, we haven't told our nine-year-old son that he's having heart surgery. He just thinks he's coming in for a few tests. We don't want to make him anxious. And we don't want, when he comes in, the nurses or anyone to tell him that he's going to wake up after heart surgery. So th- that's sort of an example of what we're talking about, which is where the, the preferences and beliefs about what is best for their child come from a pretty good place. They're well motivated. They, you know, he may be a very anxious boy who, who could react really badly to knowing about um, his impending surgery. But from a clinician's perspective, there are lots to be concerned about if the nine-year-old doesn't know about the surgery and wakes up with all sorts of tubes and, um, and you know, there's all sorts of harms and we could spend a whole session on, on, on that. But 
you know, do you just simply override the parents because you as a clinician know that it's not a good idea? Or to what extent do you engage with parents' respect that they do have authority to to make decisions for their children, for their child, and also respect them as decision makers and not just march over them? So that that's that grey, that area where negotiation and balancing of those principles occurs and that is what ethical reasoning is all about. What you laid out really nicely is how challenging these dilemmas are and thinking about the current kind of continued professional development provision and the weight seems to be, I mean, if we imagine you know, two rooms, one with a sign saying, manual therapy to the knee course here, another sign saying bioethics in this room, the queue for the knee manual therapy would probably be out the door because clinicians perceive that they need to acquire more skills, more technical skills to treat bits of patients or and certainly to know about body parts of patients in terms of anatomy. But I mean, what's your sense about broadly speaking, and I appreciate this all maybe vary, it will vary across professions and disciplines, about clinicians' expertise to manage these ethical dilemmas and the, you know, how equipped are clinicians to think about these, these things deeply? Well, if I go back to your scenario you painted of the weekend course of manual therapy, learning how to do things, and learning particular skills and procedures versus uh, the course on ethical obligations of clinicians, I think there'd be a bit of a stampede to the mm, yeah. let, let's learn something concrete and I can use it next week when I'm in practice. So I think the marketing of ethics and the articulation of what it actually means could be improved. And So, for example, if the course for ethics was framed as should therapists always do manual therapy just because the patient asks? Or should therapists refer to other more expert clinicians who work down the road because they know they're better at, at um, a particular skill and do they have an obligation to provide that information to patients? Or should therapists give patients their social media tag you know, questions that have real meaning and that clinicians think about and are challenged by and wonder about when they go home are absolutely part of everyday practice. So I think if we can market that, you know, these questions come up all the time and do you find yourself wondering about them? If so, come to the ethics course. <laughs> But I guess to some extent, either the questions aren't on the radar of the clinicians that go to the knee course, or they know the answer to those questions, i.e. it's just assumed that patients need manual therapy and patients need treatment. That's an unquestionable yeah. principle in itself. And so the ethical reasoning and ethics challenges those personal values or assumptions around care. Yes, so ethical reasoning challenges perhaps not so much, and they may be personal values, but often I think they're, they're sort of um, 
unexamined professional ethical principles. You know, they're just taken as given and, yeah, you're right, people don't realise actually there might be different ways of looking at what is the right thing to do and people might actually have a different perspective than me. And if you can open up that discussion, it can really make work a little more interesting too because it makes it less rote, it makes it less automatic, it makes it more ethically interesting to practice, I think, but just just being aware. And it also relieves some of the tension that I think quietly builds up in clinicians when they're faced with a myriad of small ethical challenges like, oh, I'm not certain what to do here, but I'm going to go this way. Mm. And if you don't debrief, it sort of builds up a bit of tension in clinicians and, you know, at worst it can lead to burnout if they're if they're sort of constantly a bit concerned or worried or not sure. So I think ethics plays a really important role in the wellbeing, ethics discussions and having an opportunity to engage with colleagues about ethical challenges is actually a really important part of clinical practice and sustainable practice. And I just want to get to... One was to revisit or to visit some of those case examples, particularly around the manual therapy to the neck, because it's such an interesting area and such an excitable area for physical therapists. And then also get to some some ways that clinicians can be better at ethical reasoning. So if we start with you know the example of risk versus benefit of treatment and you organically raise the cervical spine manual therapy example where the risks of adverse events i.e. stroke and paralysis and all that horrible stuff range from one in 300,000 as far as I know to one in three and a half million so a huge variance in the literature it's a technique which seems to be particularly popular across physical therapy manual therapy professions to be highly valued by by patients has questionable evidence or certainly you know best case moderate evidence for clinical outcomes what are the ethical issues there about harm benefit and i suppose also if you've got some snazzy way to have this discussion with patients because i still don't communicate it well and either scare the patient stiff or neglect not to give them the full facts Mm. you know so i swing between two Two ends. Yeah. Yeah, I think that what you raise there is a really important point, which is how do you bring these ethical values just in right into the clinic and into the conversations that you have. So, it, you know, you don't stop the, the, the sort of um, important relationship and rapport building to, to sit and formally say now it's time to have the sort of um, ethics discussion about <laughs> uh, here's what I think uh, you need and but I need to check in with you. Uh, I think you you um, it helps if you are aware of the ethical values that are important in every encounter and that doesn't mean you formally they formally sort of come in into your language but, if you keep in mind that the 
thinking about benefiting a patient means thinking what's the best sort of treatment and that can be relying upon your evidence, knowledge and, and clinical expertise. And thinking about harms can be from that perspective too. But if you think about what does this person, what would this person like to know uh, about what I know um, and how can I give them an opportunity to ask questions and to be part of the conversation. So thinking about what is this person in front of me, how can I ensure that they have as much information as they need to think about the treatment options? So some simple questions that can be built into the conversation are tell me what you know about manipulation or, you know, uh, treatment of your neck. It depends how well you know the patient. You might already know the answer to this. But, it, um, you know, tell me, tell me what you know about it and tell me what your preferences are for, for this treatment. Um, or I could do, you know, treat, I could do a manipulation, I could do some, some mobilisation, I could do some stretches. I think manipulation is going to be the quickest way to unlock this problem. But, but, you know, there are some, some risks associated with that. They're very rare. And maybe you have a little picture on the wall saying, you know, one in 14,000 or something you can easily incorporate without alarming the patient. Or you can say, look, this is a, a riskier one, but the risk is so rare that um, it's, um, I, it, it says, and compare it to something. Like it's, it's more risky for you to walk across the road and get into your car than it is for this, if that's true. <laughs> uh, so, so you give them your idea of what, is what you think is important from a clinical perspective. You give them information about the risk so they have it, but, but not in an alarming way. And you um, ask them what they're thinking about. You might also ask them, would you like me to make the decision for you based on what I can see clinically? Lots of people find this is just, they don't want to make the decision and they can they like to leave it up to the clinician and I'm also happy with that. But um, you can't... Is that, I, I, did, I hadn't heard of that. Is that. That's a legitimate ethically position to take is to for the person to consent almost that for you to, to lead the decision making at that moment. Not, not exactly, but I, I think you can say to a, a person, because it's part of respecting their wishes, what's your preferences for how you want this, uh, these decisions to be made? And they can say, oh, look, you just do whatever you want. However, if there is a specific set of risks that should be mentioned and compared, you can't, you can't sort of buy your way out of that completely. But I think it's quite legitimate to give people the opportunity to say, look, I'm not interested in, in, in knowing about this. And sometimes you can say, well, that's fine, I can make this decision. But in um, situations where there are high stakes, you know, you don't need to tell, the, the patient doesn't need to make a decision about whether they do exercises or mobilisation if they don't want to, if they want you to just take over that. But where the stakes go up and the risks and the consequences of the treatment are higher and more risky, there is an obligation to give patients a little bit more information about or more specific information about those risks. 
But again, the caveat is without alarming them. You don't need to sit down and draw up a contract. This is, you know, a conversation and a process. So each time you have a conversation with the patient, you get to know a little bit more about their preferences and what concerns they have. With the caveat, the ethical bottom line where the risk is really high, somehow you have to weave that risk in. Mm. And, and so the alarming bit is, is the challenging it is the It is the trickiest bit. Because you you allude you kind of allude to there are some risks and most patients or not, some patients say what are those risks and then you go from a bit of soreness and then why then they'll say things like why are you telling me about you know, I'm totally fine with that then they might probe a bit more what are the other risks and then you end up saying the the S word or the P word and they decline the treatment which it, for some patients may have been a beneficial treatment perhaps uh, a competent adult who has decision-making capacity, who has information set before them, might decline what you think is a really, in your view, rare risk and why would they decline this? But they can and they should be given the opportunity to would be the ethical response. So, and this happens many times in many different ways that, you know, patients. But I think it's a, a conversation, you know, really worth exploring with your colleagues too, which is, you know, do you let patients choose something suboptimal or do you, you know, if you don't say it, then they won't know and you can get the outcome you want. Hmm. But yeah. it's really important from a, a rest, if you if you really sort of take on board this idea that, that this adult patient has capacities and to, to think for themselves, if you think that's important, then it means you follow through with it and you, you don't give them the three-year-old preference of do you want to wear the green dress or the red dress, but you've already decided they're wearing a dress sort mm-hmm. of thing. So I suppose the, the second kind of case, just to get your comments on, not to necessarily kind of run completely through, but is you know, thinking about private sector patients versus public sector patients where there's a bit more ambiguity around clinical need where in the private sector, it seems to be the case that you can offer care or treatments as long as they're valued by the patient. And of course, the ethical principles run through private or, or public sector care. But it seems to me that in the private sector, patients can autonomously choose to, to come to, to see a clinician. And the clinicians are, are able to provide care if there's a personal kind of value obtained by the patient from that care, such as the social interaction perhaps, or the feeling of having manual therapy or being put through an exercise session, but there isn't a particularly strong clinical need. And I just wonder if you want to comment a bit more about the clinical justification versus the patient kind of values or preferences. Mm. I think the the bottom line ethical value is that all patients should be treated equally and not discriminated against on the basis of gender, race, um, capacity to pay. <laughs> but in reality, I think what you're saying is that patients in in um, private practice, if they pay for the service, then the service will deliver what they want 
whether or not the clinician agrees always with what they want. Whereas in a public system, that opportunity for, you know, just what the patient wants is somewhat constrained or can be. And it goes to that principle of the fourth principle, which doesn't always get a lot of airplay, which is uh, justice, that the idea that you deliver healthcare fairly and justly, but I think the caveat for that is that you deliver healthcare and use resources that are at your disposal, that are at, that are available to you as fairly and justly as you can. So there's already a constraint on resources in a public health system that may not be present in, in the private where, where payment allows for different capacities and speed of service. Now, you could argue that it should, you know, if it's if people have a right to universal health care or to, to health care, then shouldn't it be equal? Yes, in an ideal world it should. But so I think for clinicians it's important to be fair and to think carefully about how they can practice in a public health system which which is you know equitable. For, for all the people who need them in that public health system. And there's a few different ways to, to decide on, on that. But nevertheless, that's the sort of idea. So I think, yeah, there, 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 is, a, there is a difference um, and it's based upon capaci capacity to pay. And yes, it's not ideal, but I, I still think you don't shirk your responsibilities in the public health system. You can still use that principle of justice and, and fairness to guide how you work. And I think, you know, what, an argument I've heard reasonably frequently is that in the, in the private setting context that if patients choose to see a particular therapist, then, then they're fair game to have anything they want done to them or with them because they're expressing a, a choice. And a therapist might say, well, you know, they've, they've come to me and they've expressed their autonomy. They've taken the lead, the initiative to, to seek care. Therefore, they get pretty much anything I decide that they should get. And they're almost relinquishing that, that decision-making just by walking into your clinic room and paying you money. And I mean, that's an extreme example, but there's, there's sentiments of that, I think. Yeah. But I think that that's a limited view of what respect for patient autonomy is because I think respect uh, and also it's a limited view of, well, it goes back to what we were talking about before, that the, the limits on clinician authority to decide what is best for a patient is... Uh, limited by a respect for patients' beliefs and preferences and values about health. And that tension between the two, if there is tension, usually they're aligned, but if there is a difference, then I think you, you really need to in, um, take both patient preferences and clinician preferences uh, and weigh them up seriously. And it should fall towards patient preferences, that's where the weight should should fall for a competent adult patient who, um, unless it goes absolutely against clinicians' 
values or they think that it's going to harm the patient or it's completely ineffective and they don't want to be, you know, spending their time doing that treatment. So there is a limit that a clinician can say, no, that's I'm not doing what you want, <laughs> even though I respect your your preferences. I also respect my professional authority and autonomy. But you need to keep them in balance, I think, from an ethics perspective. It goes back to keeping those four prima facie principles in some sort of balance. And if you're going to allow one to override another, you are required to have a justification for why it's ethically okay for my preference to trump my patient's preference. (laughs) And so just moving finally on to how we can get better at ethically reasoning or ethical reasoning. And I suppose coming back to probably the, the first few minutes of our conversation about identifying an ethical problem and practitioners will, will be aware of how to identify clinical problems. Mm. You know, they've got various diagnostic labels for, for bits of the body. How How do we know when there is an ethical problem, is it just intuitively uncomfortable? I can imagine that you've got, you may get 10 practitioners to, I mean, you may have done work into this, but the the ethical gaze of practitioners may vary quite a bit that you could give them a vignette, for example, the same vignette to 10 practitioners and their eyes will be drawn to different or none ethical dilemmas within that clinical case How do we get better at identifying those ethical problems? I think you actually highlighted my answer early on when you said that people might intuitively feel something. And often the first sign that there is perhaps an ethical dimension to this conversation or this decision that needs to be made is that you feel a bit uncomfortable about something and that's it's pretty wishy-washy isn't it <laughs> no no it's not I think it's a really good um, yeah yeah gut feeling or yeah well it's a good red flag for you to to if you feel a bit icky <laughs> about this or another word could be you're not certain about how to frame the information um, that you're going to give to a patient like before we were talking about, but how do I mention risk? So if, if you're feeling, oh, this patient seems to just want me to get on with treatment, should I um, stop and tell them about the risks of uh, manipulation? Um, you know, flashing lights, this is an ethical moment, really. It, it is an ethical it's when they're kind of half undressed, <laughs> you know, coming into the door already. Yeah. To, they'd lie on That's the couch, it. not not really desiring any kind of conversation. Yes. And you yes. think, oh, do I stop them and disturb that kind of therapeutic flow, whatever that is? That's right. So it is a really, it, it's an ethically, we, we often refer to this idea of an ethically important moment uh, because it has values within it which could, which some people would put different weight on. So you might decide, look, this patient respects my expertise, they're ready to go, it would be almost harmful to stop this, sit them up and have a talk. Like the harms would be worse than the benefits in your view. There might be another person that says, look, just because it's easy and you want to 
get on with the flow, you need to stop and think about the value of patients' right to have information about the treatment. So, you know, usually there's a middle middle ground where you can say, all right, can we keep the flow going plus have a quick conversation? You know, is there a way of honouring both those principles here of, of not just, in this case, you're not overriding a patient. So that makes it less of a flashing light, if you like, because it seems like the patient is really agreeing with what you, you think is the right thing to do as well. Um, but the... There's the, the flashing light comes from you're getting close to a legal obligation here, which is that patients need to be informed of risks associated with high-risk treatments. Now, it really, you know, only a, generally applies to a small number of treatments that, a say, a physiotherapist or other manual therapist would, would offer. But in many areas of, of medical practice, you know, the the requirement to give people options and to really engage them in in um, how to, you know, what, what is available for them and what, what matches with what they would like out of treatment becomes really vital. So that little flashing light in the therapist's room, you might ignore it, but it, it's better if you have a plan about it and you know how you're going to manage this rather than wait for the moment because if it all seems like it's heading in one direction, you might just go with the flow. And are there any other final suggestions or things that you've learned about developing clinicians' ethical reasoning? What would be some reasonably straightforward steps or actions that therapists could take to to develop the side of their thinking or their reasoning? I think... One of the things I have learnt is that it's not particularly useful to um, have a lecture on the four ethical principles that guide your <laughs> clinical practice and remind people of the obligations they have to patients because the your patients trust your expertise, therefore you must ensure that you benefit the treatment, do not harm them, respect their autonomy. Because, well, it it sort of has very little meaning for them. So... I guess my what I've learned over the years is to ask to to, to set up sit, um, opportunities for clinicians to get together to discuss what they find ethically challenging, and to take that as seriously as um, setting up conversations about how to do some particular manual work or particular skill, and to so set up a bit of a culture of asking questions about. Have you found, you know, anything challenging with your patients? Any conflicts, disagreements? Any times where you've been a bit uncertain about the right thing to do? And can you say a bit more about why you were uncertain and what did you think was the was was at stake? And what did you think you should have done? It just starts opening up your mind as a clinician that actually maybe there are other ways of thinking about this. So I guess the answer is conversations with others about ethics, maybe getting access to an ethicist to just join your clinical meetings. To bleep down when the things get hairy. <laughs> yeah, just sort of have, have some ongoing ethics professional development, which is, a, you know, stimulates discussion and questions and curiosity about the way that you we're all practicing 
making decisions. And I think just to, to finish up on, you know, the, the lecture on the ethical principles is clearly not the right way to approach ethics with a patient, but showing that you care about the ethical well-being of the person and the values which feed into those those ethics. I mean, that's from a patient point of view, that's going to develop trust. It's going to, you're going to think this person actually cares cares about me and not just about my knee or my shoulder. So there are, rather than just being a defensive way to practice so the therapist doesn't get into trouble, there's some therapeutic currency there that it begins to solidify the, the relationship. Absolutely. And I think that's what can be a real shift. And, and I mentioned before that, in fact, thinking about uh, the ethical aspects of your practice can inject some some real interest and um, a different way of engaging with with your practice. So it's, it becomes more enjoyable and more interesting for you to actually see conflicts and differences, first of all, to see them <laughs> and not, not even not see them, uh, first of all, to see them and then to think about ways of engaging with your patients from a particular disposition of respect for the patient and what they think and believe makes it interesting for the clinician. But as you, as you say, it also has an upside because it um, demonstrates respect, builds trust rather than by, and, and it's a more egalitarian, democratic way of building trust than the trust which is built upon you showing your expertise and your authority and your capacity to fix, which which ultimately is not a very sustainable form of trust uh, because you just have to keep fixing and, and being expert, whereas, you know, sharing some of that expertise in what's best is much more sustainable. Yeah, I mean, when you don't fix them or they don't improve, when that happens in the context of a well-developed ethical relationship, it's a, it's a different thing. Absolutely. Claire, thank you so much. Um, a pleasure. It's been great, great chatting. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.